In Acts 2, 1 through 21. Genesis 4, 1 through 11. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Now Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there and confuse the language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Now Acts 2, 1 through 21. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygra and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, 
saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great aim of the... This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if Miss Brittany and Miss Savannah will come, uh, they're going to guide our little ones over to children's worship. So all the little ones, first grade and under, if you'd like to go over, we invite you to line up behind Miss Savannah. And we're going to head over to the other building. And if we have any visiting children, we ask that one parent go over and get them uh, signed up with our volunteers. All right. I was 20 years old uh, when I realized that I was a racist, that I held unfair racial prejudices against black people. I didn't regularly use racial epithets, though they were a part of my internal dialogue inherited from my family and friends. I wasn't a member of the KKK, and I didn't in, uh, participate in violence against black people. But I did unfairly discriminate against them in ways uh, that I thought and in the things that I did. It even affected ways uh, that I read the Bible. And you may wonder how after 20 years of life, I suddenly had this epiphany. I'd functionally been a Christian all my life. I grew up in the church. I grew up reading the Bible. I'd actually been preaching already for four years. At that time, actually, 26 years I'd, I'd already been preaching. And I was about a year into my transition into Reformed theology, which certainly played a part in the process. But how did God reveal to me this sin? Well, I went to the Civil Rights Museum in Birmingham, Alabama, as a part of a school project. And as I heard the stories of discrimination and violence against African Americans in that community, I asked the question. Maybe it was the Spirit who asked it. If I had been there in Birmingham in the 60s, which side would I have taken? And I knew the way I thought. I knew how the people closest to me thought. It was all around me. I was raised in it. And on that day in Birmingham, God revealed and exposed a sin within me that I didn't know was there. Probably to others, the, the symptoms were painfully apparent, but I was clueless. 
that I harbored and lived with the sin of racism. And that realization began for me a process, a process of repenting of my own unfair discrimination and prejudice against image bearers, image bearers like me. And I'm grateful to God for the transformation that he has brought about in my own life, in my own thinking, and in my relationships. I'm supremely grateful to God that in my home and in my children, that they see people differently than I did even at their age. The good news of the gospel is that in Christ, we are not bound to sin. In Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be set free from sin. We can be sanctified. And racism isn't the sin above all sins. No, it's a sin like any other. And the power of the Spirit can break its dominion in our lives, or we can continue to justify it and cherish it and cultivate it in hiding. But if we belong to Christ, God promises that he will discipline us for that sin and for all sins, calling us to repentance and obedience. Now, I'm well aware, as I've been aware through this whole sermon series, that this topic is controversial. I'm not even going to define my terms. It's one of my favorite things to do. I'm not, even, I'm not going to define the term racism at this point. Instead, I want you to notice your internal, emotional, mental reaction to me saying the word and also to me sharing my abbreviated story. As you hear my confession, do you find yourself internally going on the defense fending off the thought that you could possibly be a racist. Or maybe you're trying to justify yourself by having a better example than me. Well, at least I wasn't as bad as he was. Do you feel that your lack of prejudice by comparison somehow exonerates you or makes you less of a racist than me? Here's the fact. I don't think everybody is a racist. I I don't think everybody in this room is a racist. In fact, I'm confident Some of you are not. I hope that a majority of you are not. But my own personal experience as someone who grew up in gospel-preaching churches argues that you can have a person who's an otherwise solid, consistent, church-going Christian that has a sin problem that they don't even realize. In fact, I can promise you, you do have sin problems you're not aware of. Racism could be one of them. So how does the Bible tackle the sin of racism? Well, to engage that question well, we need to begin once more with that notion of all people being created in God's image. Now, we've changed some things with our sermon notes in the last eight weeks. Uh, The the sermon notes are like a separate handout. We also have some folders now for you, too, where you can keep those in your folders. People told me they have stacks of worship guides at their homes. That's that's probably too much. You can just put them in these folders now. So if you didn't get one of those, you can get one on your way out. But if you like to take notes, here's the first blank in your uh, notes here. So the Bible tells the story of human history. And the ending of the story is the reconciliation of all things in Christ. So that's where everything is headed, the reconciliation of all things in Christ. So let me tell you the story of human history once more. How did it begin? Well, we've seen this for nine weeks now. God created humans 
as image bearers. He created us as image bearers individually and also corporately, which means that you and all people exist to reflect him, to reflect his glory. That's why we're here. And that's the beginning of the story. Before sin ever enters it in the garden, we were all made to work together for God's glory on this earth. Thus, God created humans for non-competitive, cooperative, complementary relationships to the glory of God. That's what we were made for, to be a family working together for the glory of God in non-competitive, cooperative, complementary relationships. And we thought about that two weeks ago concerning men and women. We talked about how God made men and women to work together for the glory of God, but the same principle applies to every human being. God made us to work together, not against each other, for God's glory, not for our own. So what happened next in the story? Well, sin. Sin introduced competition, division, and enmity between man, man, and God. So suddenly, our relationships with each other between man and man were broken, became division, competition, enmity, but our relationship with God got messed up as well. So when God shows up in the garden and says to Adam, have you eaten of the fruit? What did he say? I, I love that it's a, a woman who responds to that. Come on, guys. The woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit. Instantly, we see division between man and woman. We see Adam betraying his bride. We see Adam trying to save his hide at his own wife's expense. Division, enmity, competition, right? You don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun your friend, right? That's what we see Adam doing here. But implicit in Adam's statement, this woman that you gave me, we hear in that division and enmity between Adam and God as well. And that division, that competition, that enmity didn't get better as the generations went forward. What happened between these people's two boys? Warren read the story for us earlier. Death. Utter enmity. So there's a division now between God and humanity, right? Which means that sacrifices need to be made. There's no relationship with God. There's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And so you have Cain and Abel making sacrifices, but they're both sinners. One does the sacrifice well. He's good and obedient. The other, the sacrifice is not good. And that leads to conflict between these two brothers. Competition, division, and eventually death. Two brothers... Two image bearers born into the same family meant to work together for the glory of God, to share the glory of God in the world. And what does God say? What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. That's just generation number two. The story doesn't end there. In Genesis 11, you find this fascinating event. Humankind, this is is what what we all say we want, humankind sets their differences aside. Humankind finds unity. They find peace. And how do they do it? Look again at Genesis 11, verses 1 through 4. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. 
They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So humans set their differences aside with one another. But why? Not for the glory of God. They did it to make a name for themselves. They set their differences aside in revolution against God. So what had God told Noah? What had God told Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He said, I created you to reflect my glory, so make more glory reflectors and go to the corners of the earth. Fill this earth with my glory. And in Genesis 11, they say, no. We're not going to be spread around. We're going to stay here. And no, we're not going to live for your glory. We're going to make a monument to ourselves with this city and this tower. Humanity joined together in revolution against God. They didn't give a rip about his glory. They wanted their own glory. So they built a tower to their name. There's a whole other sermon here about false unity and unity for wrong purposes. I'll skip it for now. But when God sees their unity not in truth... When God sees their unity in not glorifying him, when God sees their unity in idolatry and sin, what does he do? He breaks up the band. He introduces harder divisions to prevent a slippery slope into self-destruction. Look at verses 6 through 9. And Yahweh said, when we see Lord in small caps like that in the Hebrew, it's the, the name of God. And Yahweh said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so they may not understand one another's speech. So Yahweh dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of all the earth, and from there Yahweh dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So when God did this work, when God split up humanity into different languages, it was actually a mercy to us. This was a disciplinary act that saved humanity. What he did at Babel by breaking people up along these language barriers, it was like Adam and Eve being cast out of the garden. Why did God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden? He cast them out so that they wouldn't eat of the tree of life and live forever in their depraved state as reprobates. No, we need to die. When we die, we get rid of our flesh, Christians, and we are set free from our sin forever. So when he cast them out, when he cut them off from eternal perdition in their bodies, it was for Adam and Eve's good. It was a mercy to cast them out of the garden. Indeed, an act of excommunication. That act saved them. So also Babel was an act of mercy. If humanity had been allowed to find unity in our revolution against God's glory and for our glory, if God had let that go, all of humankind would have been lost to reprobation forever. So he divided us, and that was a mercy. So where does the story go next? Well, through the death and resurrection of Christ... God seeks to reconcile and undo all of this brokenness. God wants to reunite humanity to itself for his glory. 
He wants to restore us to our created purpose, wherein every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and he's going to remake the world that we've messed up so that humanity will live together in the presence of God as image bearers forever. That's what's going to happen in the future. The restoration and reconciliation of all things in Christ. And it's also coming about now. Through the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost, that end game of restoration and reconciliation of man and man and man and God, that has already begun today. So because of that, I'm going to make some big claims. First, through the gospel, God will break down all hostility between people, restoring us to one non-competitive, cooperative family of image bearers aimed toward God's glory. Stated more simply, through the gospel, through what Jesus has done, God aims to undo the relational breakage that happened in the garden and at Babel. He aims to make, through Christ, one people, one family who will inherit the world, one people made of men and women who speak lots of different languages now. Ephesians chapter 2 put it this way. But now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off, who were separated, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. So God wants to bring Jews and Gentiles into the same family that honors God. And what is the means of doing it? Faith in Christ alone. How will humankind be reunited? Through faith in Christ. People of different tongues, tribes, and nations can not only find commonality, but find a new family a new community, the kingdom of God. We leave our old communities and join this new one, one that is of God's kingdom that is not of this earth. So we, when we trust Christ, we walk backwards from Babel back to the garden and we find our place there in communion with God and with his people. God's doing this work now. And we know that he will be successful in this work not only because he's God, but because we can read the end of the story. Listen to this from Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. One thing that I find interesting about Revelation 7 is that John didn't look out at the crowd and see a bunch of beige people. No. Uh, We don't become this sort of middle color where there's no difference between all of us. Uh, It doesn't say that they're all speaking King James English or Hebrew. No, John looks at the crowd and says, wow, there's all kinds of different people out here. They, They look different. They speak different languages. They appear to be from all over the earth. And the one thing that brings them together 
is their delight in what Christ has done. That's the vision. That's where we're headed together, and the gospel lays the foundation for it. And here's the key idea theologically and biblically. Pentecost undid Babel. There was a day at Babel where God said, no, no unity. Get away from each other. Speak different nations. Split into tribes because together you will do more damage than you will at enmity with each other. God would rather us be at war with each other than to be joined together against his glory. But now that Christ has come, God fills Christians with the Holy Spirit and says, okay, people, now get together and start my new community. Build my new kingdom. But this time... This kingdom is going to be for my glory. So join together people of all tongues, tribes, and nations. And through my spirit, I'll give you the capacity to understand each other, to love each other, to carry each other, and to have that non-competitive, cooperative family for which we were actually created. So ever since Pentecost, the spirit has been creating a new Edenic family from the ruins of Babel. He's calling us back together for the glory of Christ, and we call that the church. The church is the true humanity. It is what we were always intended to be, one family joined together, working together for the glory of God and Christ to the ends of the earth. Now, if you're you're visiting with us today, you'll notice we have Portuguese up here. We actually have a separate Portuguese worship guide. We're going to be eating some Brazilian food Why are we worshiping in English and Portuguese? Well, because English isn't the language of the church. There is no language of the church. Unfortunately, eu não falo português. Is that right? Yeah, I don't don't speak Portuguese, so I can't preach in it. But to be a Christian in St. Tammany Parish, you don't have to speak English. And in eternity... We're not all going to speak English. Revelation shows us that. So today, we embrace diversity in our worship on the shared grounds of the glory of Christ. We want Portuguese speakers in our community to believe the gospel. We want them to trust Jesus and to live out their calling. We learn there's no Portuguese-speaking church here. So how can we serve you guys and love you guys? And guess what? I want every English speaker in St. Tammany Parish to do the same thing. I want everybody to trust Jesus and to pursue his glory in their lives. And honestly, I want them to do it with us. I want you to know something. You don't feel like I'm talking about racism, do you? Because I'm not. I'm talking about the story of humanity. And the story of humanity has gotten jacked up by sin in so many different ways. And it can get to the point where we start to think Babel is the norm. That Babel is the status quo. That the divisions caused in the garden and in Babel are what we should expect. That's not the case. Now, when we get to heaven one day, we can't erase the story. The division happened, and God is making something new and beautiful from the broken pieces. Revelation 7 is a a wonderful collage of colors and languages that glorifies God, and that's what heaven is going to be one day. I have learned in the last decade to immensely appreciate Martin Luther King Jr. And given the, 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 the choice between his colorblindness ethic 
and the more violent approach to racial reconciliation that we see regularly today, given the choice between those two, I prefer King's way. But even King didn't go far enough. Revelation 7-9 isn't colorblind, and it's not language agnostic. What we see in that text is a broken humanity put back together, not by ignoring or coloring over our differences, not by all becoming the same, but simply by trusting Christ and then committing to love each other as we love ourselves. So this is the story of reconciliation that God is telling in the Bible, and it should shape the way that we react to racial division in our world. It should cause to radical repentance regardless of what our prejudices are, but how? How should this story shape us? Well, I want to focus on three things. The biblical story of repentance calls us to these three things, humble wisdom, lamenting hope, and justified freedom. Before I have a friend come and join me, I want to fill in the rest of the blanks, and then we're going to unpack them together. So here are the three things um, that I think the, the story of biblical reconciliation calls us to. First is humble wisdom. I know there's a lot of words on this slide. They taught me in school not to put this many words on a slide, so I'm sorry. But what do I mean by humble wisdom? When, when there is racial strife clashing in our world, first we need to respond with humility. So our shared image bearing, me and you, whoever I'm having this conversation with or this difficulty with, our shared image bearing calls me to listen to you before I speak. So as Christians, this is how we should start. Treat every human being, Christian or not, with honor because they're image bearers. So we listen before we speak. But then what do we speak when we speak? Our reaction is wisdom. My reaction to racial strife must be shaped by the scriptures and the gospel rather than my preferred or inherited perspective. So when I'm talking to people about race issues in our community, I don't want to respond with what I heard on Fox News or CNN or NPR or whatever you listened to this week or what your parents taught you. We listen first, and when we respond, our hope is that our, our mouths, our words, would be shaped by the Scriptures and by the Gospel. So that's the first thing I think the story teaches us, to respond to these things with humble wisdom. Next, I think this story calls us to lamenting hope. What is the lament that we should have as people who know the whole story? First, we realize that any division still experienced between Christians is an unnecessary and temporary artifact of the human story. There should be nothing between me and another Christian. We have the Holy Spirit now. Christ has washed all that away. We are meant to be living in unity. So any division between Christians is unnecessary, and we lament that. We grieve that. But next, it's up there already, we weep that injustice does happen because true justice is available in Christ. So when we see injustice in the world, we can grieve over that, But all this lament happens in the context of hope. This is filled in in there already. We look forward to where the world is headed. We look forward to eternal reconciliation, and we aim to experience it in part in this life. The last point is that the biblical story of reconciliation calls us to justified freedom. So first, justified. We find our identity in the righteousness and sonship of Christ above any other identity. Before I'm white or whatever I am, I belong to Christ. I am made righteous in Christ. I find my sonship in him. So that's our primary identity. We stand in our justification, uh, but then that gives us freedom. Uh, We've been set free to love the people around us because we realize that there is only one thing that gives us worth, our creation and our redemption in Christ. 
So to unpack these uh, three things with me, this humble wisdom we're called to, this lamenting hope, and this justified freedom, I want to invite James Machen to come, and uh, we're going to chew on this uh, together. So come on forward, James. When y'all saw the chairs, y'all thought, "Uh uh-oh, he's talking to somebody again, and I am. Here's a mic for you, my friend. Thank you. Testing? Yeah. You nervous yet? Uh, I'm very nervous. Good. Good. Let me pray for you, brother. Father, as uh, James and I kind of unpack his story um, and his experience of the reconciliation uh, offered in the cross, not only between you and him, but between him and his fellow men, uh, we pray that you would calm his nerves and, and encourage him and uh, that you would bless us through his, his experience. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So we've got this story of reconciliation that's been unfolding in human history. We see it in the Bible. And I think the story calls us to three things. First is humble wisdom. And so I thought it would be helpful before I speak on this to hear a little bit about your story and to um, hear what you've been through. So, James, um, tell us a little bit about your childhood. So how were you taught to deal with experiences of racial discrimination and prejudice as a child? Well, I was very blessed because um, whereas my, my parents did not explicitly teach us about, you know, race and racism, uh, they also didn't say negative things about other people, other races. And uh, the other thing that was a big blessing for me was uh, in my formative years, meaning between the ages of like four and eight my father was doing his uh, graduate uh, school work at Notre Dame. And so I grew up in this apartment complex on Notre Dame's campus where in order to live there, you had to be a graduate student at Notre Dame married with children. So that meant that there were all these kids from all over the world, from Mexico, my uh, my best bud, Peter, was from Lebanon, and uh, the little lady I had a crush on was from India. Uh, but we all played together, and I think that's instructive for all of us that when we have exposure to people early that are different uh, and you learn to play together, um, uh, wonderful things can happen. Now, did you, you grew up in the church, Yes. Yes. So, so how did um, how how did the Bible inform? This getting to the wisdom part of that mm-hmm. that humble wisdom. How has the Bible changed or developed your views of race, racism, and, and, and reconciliation? We, we we see calls that for unity, for, for restoration. How has the Bible shaped your view of, of those things? Well, I think uh, first and foremost is turning the other cheek, um, because for me. Because these kinds of conversations need to happen, and unfortunately, uh, you know, it gets fraught, and, you know, like immediately. And uh, I have a lot of white friends who are very comfortable talking to me, and they will say, look, James, I, I really like you, and I think you're a great guy. But i got to be honest with you. I, I think that uh, black people in general, they're lazy, and... Uh, that's the reason why they're economically disadvantaged. And 
So my first response isn't, oh, let's go to blows over this, but rather, uh, this is the turn of the cheek. Tell me why you feel that way. Um, I mean, do you, do you know people personally? And, and that kind of exchange gives me an opportunity to, to tell them, to tell them, look, I've been called a workaholic and, uh, uh, my my siblings and I were imbued with all you know a very deep uh, work ethic, so it's not everywhere. And but that first that first turn of the cheek helps the the uh, the, the conversation to go forward. That's where the the humble wisdom and the justified freedom overlap a little bit, mm-hmm. because. Uh, I want to be right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I want people to, to tell me what I want to hear. But if we are justified in Christ, if we have everything we need in him, then I don't have anything to prove. And so I can let another person be wrong. And I can ask that question and say, okay, why, why do you feel that way? Let's, yeah. let's work on that, that together. That's, that's helpful. Um, another question. This is kind of now shifting into the second part about lamenting hope. As Christians who know the end of the story, we lament that people are experiencing less than that now, but we look forward to that with hope. So Martin Luther King Jr. once said that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour. Revelation 7-9 depicts all tongues, tribes, and nations worshiping together, a very non-segregated environment. What do you think it looks like for us to live in that tension between those two things? Honest about where we are today, but wanting to move toward that. Uh, How do we live in that tension? Well, you bring to mind how my wife and I came to Faith Presbyterian. Uh, <laughs> uh, we had a plan. We were going to slip in the back. and Well, I had a plan. My wife doesn't care. Uh, <laughs> we, were, we would slip in the back, and, you know, if we got uncomfortable looks, I'm not interested in making anybody uncomfortable. I don't want my wife to be uncomfortable. Or, you know... Ugliness, and we didn't walk in with the presupposition that that was going to happen. It's just, uh, or that there would be real ugliness. It's just the little looks. Um, but instead, what happened was what Todd, where's Todd? What Todd described last Sunday, uh, people descended on us like locusts. <laughs> and they were, um, you know, where are you from? Uh, what's your name? Welcome, welcome. And, uh, and let me say this to the congregation. Uh, please let us not ever lose that, that locust thing. Um, it, it might be maybe not the best imagery, locust, but uh, <laughs> uh, I think it's wonderful. And then flash forward two years later, I'm standing in the aisle there, and I was talking to a fellow church member, I'm sorry. <laughs> and we were having a private moment. We're holding hands. And uh, after I finished exp- expressing my private thoughts to her, we embraced. And it was warm and wonderful. And I thought to myself, how remarkable is this, right? Two years ago, we slipped in the back with a plan to leave. And now here I am in this wonderful, warm embrace. Uh, and then it occurred to me, and I think this is at the prompting of the Holy Spirit, no. No, it's not remarkable at all. Uh, Christians have been doing this for centuries. For millennia, we have held each other across cultural, racial, 
national economic boundaries. And uh, uh, so it wasn't remarkable at all. It's just that me and Kelly happened to uh, walk into a big, giant nest of Christians. So the world wants that desperately. They want men and women, boys and girls who are different from each other to embrace one another, to set aside their differences, to find some commonality. When you hear calls for justice and unity um, in the world, what of those cries rings to you as true to God's word and, and, and what doesn't? What, what in that call, in that invitation, do you find redemptive and what do you think is hard to redeem? Well, um, I think the, 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 the call for justice is appropriate. But unfortunately, in the secular environment and, you know, uh, intellectual secular humanists put man at the center of, of all things and, hey, we can figure this out. And so right after the call for justice, it seems that we just... You know, everybody moves to their corners of ideology, and uh, it's all about going to blows. So that's where any sort of parallel, in my opinion, ends. But um, when you are calling for justice as the gospel lays it out, uh, and, uh, you know, you, you get justice with love. You know, Paul said, speak the truth with love, um, a lot of a lot of people want to speak the truth as a as a cudgel, and you know, pounding uh, other people, and, and and maybe they have a point, maybe they're right, but the way to really do it is with love, and that's what the that's what I take from the gospel. I think when when we hear calls for justice in a, in an interpersonal sort of setting, a helpful reality is what's in your notes. This idea that true justice is only available in Christ. So today is 9-11, mm-hmm. and um, there was a war fought um, to, to bring justice for many lives that were lost. True justice would be having those people back, right? Mm-hmm. True justice would be complete restoration and reconciliation, and that doesn't come outside of the resurrection. And so any justice we experience on this planet is, is in part. And so... As a Christian, that, that leads us to lament and, and to engage with our neighbors in a way that says, do you want true justice? Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you want the world the way it should be? That is only found uh, in Christ. Well, moving on then to our final uh, point, talking about how it calls us to justified freedom, knowing who we are in Christ, and that setting us free to love the people around us. When I look at identity politics today, it seems that identity politics is really about justifying ourselves. So if I know who I am and if I can project that to others and be proud of that, I can establish my worth, my value, and my meaning in my self-identity. Meanwhile, the gospel tells us to find our identity in Christ first, that he is our first allegiance. He is the one who's making us into who we're supposed to be. So what do you think are the dangers of identifying ourselves first by our race and our tribe? That before I'm a Christian, I'm white, and you're black. What is the danger in that being the primary identifier we carry with us? I think that's the shortest path to racism, xenophobia, um, punching one another, right? 
to identify that way. And I think we should identify first as Christians and um, first and foremost. I'm a Christian first. Um, and then I'm a, I'm a black man uh, and some other stuff. Uh, <laughs> I, but uh, having that identity based in Christ is important and, uh, and, and having it first and foremost. So do you think there's a, we're having a Brazilian barbecue today. We've got a, we've got a, a, a national marker put on this food we're about to enjoy. Is there a balanced way for Christians who are citizens of God's kingdom first, members of that family first, do you think there's a balanced way for us to still enjoy and celebrate our ethnic backgrounds, to enjoy where we come from and, and our heritage, that sort of thing? Oh, my. Uh, yes, I do. Um, I, I believe that uh, when we identify as Christians first and we come together, uh, wonderful things. My wife has <laughs> been at family gatherings of, of mine and eaten things that she's never eaten before and, and found them delicious. And it's like, wow, do you guys eat like this all the time? Uh, and it's because, you know, we're sharing things that come from culture. I don't, and, and I don't find, and you can correct me if I'm wrong theologically, Jason, uh, I don't find that the Bible teaches us uh, to disconnect ourselves from culture. Um, I think our, the, our identity should be in Christ, but we can have connections to, you know, food. <laughs> We're going to enjoy some Brazilian food. Uh, and uh, music and other aspects of culture where... Hey, isn't it wonderful that you have something that I don't, that a perspective that I don't, or ideas that I don't, or music that I don't? Wow, I think that's great. And when we identify first as Christians, it makes it easy for us to, uh, to come together and enjoy those things. I think that's one of the interesting things we were talking about this the other night. You know, in the book of Acts, when you have Gentiles coming into the family— he didn't, he didn't say, okay, now you guys got to keep kosher. Mm-hmm. Now you got to do all these cultural things. He says, no, you guys are Gentiles. That's okay for you to be Gentiles. But together we are one in Christ. That breaks down the hostility uh, between the two of us. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, in, in, in speaking of hostility, there's something that I... Uh, w- another thing that happens when you identify uh, as something other than Christians is you, you get the vilification of... Of other people, right? I mean, right now, it's uh, it's uh, normal to hear white males vilified, right? As like the root of all social problems, and, and you know, 20 years ago, uh, black men were vilified as, ooh, you know, uh, very scary people coming coming for you, um, and that vilification and separation. Uh, it, it, it's, I, th- I, I think it's not uh, appropriate. And I think that uh, I have said this to my wife, that I, I believe that you're seeing some of the backlash and some of the problems associated with that because you get 19, 29-year-olds who, are, who feel like, hey, I, I, I never enslaved anybody. I didn't, I didn't do anything. And, uh, and they act out uh, because... Uh, uh, they're being pointed to and counted as being, you know, the root of evil. And 
That's, that's just not the case. So if Christ is where we find our identity, if I'm a member of the family of God first before I'm anything else, um, that frees us up then to love our neighbors. And we've talked already about identity politics. I think another way that people try to justify themselves is by public profession, not of faith, but of culpability or grief over injustice. If we flagellate ourselves publicly, that, that kind of justifies ourselves in the eyes of others. We're justified in Christ, so we have no need to do that. Um, before others, online perhaps, I think is where it happens a lot of the time. So what do you think it looks like then to step into the freedom we have in Christ to love our neighbors? In terms of just action, what, what do these folks need to do differently to see this eternal vision of everyone together in one family? How do we work toward that together in freedom? Well, I'll go back to the uh, locust thing, um, that uh, embrace um, and the warmth that my wife and I have felt, that's healing, right? And I, I believe that, that that comes from the Holy Spirit, and uh, I, I think that, you know, the unity that we have experienced here at Faith uh, is an example, frankly, for the rest of the world. So go and do likewise. <laughs> the reason I asked James to join me today, when, when Dick Fedick passed away about a month ago, James and I were talking, maybe the day after he had passed, and he said, you know, Dick Fedick was one of the first people that walked up and shook my hand when I walked in, and he had no idea how terrified I was, how nervous I was about my experience that morning. And when I heard that, I said, I want you to come share that with the, with the body because um, I think we live in a world. Now, don't, don't, mishear what I, don't not hear what I said earlier. You might have the sin of racism. You might need to deal with that. But at the same time, God has used you to bless our brother. God has, ble- has worked through you to bless our Brazilian brothers and sisters who have, who have joined us. So the Holy Spirit is at work. And so let us learn from that. Let us learn from each other and aim to live that out, not through how we post on Facebook, but in how we love the people who are around us by embodying the love of Christ to all of our fellow image bearers. What's, you got one more thing? I, yeah, one more thing. Right uh, I, I, I remember when uh, Dick Fadick, well, uh, I would come up and shake his hand, um, and he would say, excuse my seat, I'm sorry I'm not standing. And I would tell him, for me, you're royalty. You know, I, I come to you. And I also wanted to point out that um, uh, right after we came here, Pat and Lisa took us to lunch, then others did. And uh, it was, so it's on that individual one-on-one basis or couple-to-couple, uh, it's just been wonderful. We're, we're glad you're part of us, brother. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, um, it's been a long time since Babel. It's been a long time since Pentecost, but we still hold the hope that you are doing this work of reconciliation in us and through us, even here at Faith Presbyterian Church, even here in St. Tammany Parish. And so we pray, God, that you would give us minds and hearts shaped by the gospel so that we would live as Christ lived, so that we would work at the behest of your Holy Spirit, bringing about the reconciliation uh, that you have given to us in others' lives, between them and you, and between them and us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.